from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in Lexington, Kentucky. On this week's edition, the voices of Verge Vanguard winners, how the mainstream media covered the climate summit, aviation rises in the climate world, and is 3D printing a green technology? It's all additive this week on 350. It's September 21st, 2018, the cusp of autumn. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from about 710 miles east of here is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. <laughs> Hello, Joel. So where are you 710 miles west of me? I am in Lexington, Kentucky. Ah. And uh, here for the second of three Green Biz Executive Network meetings that we have during the month of September. And um, this one is being hosted by Lexmark. You know Lexmark? I do. Yeah. The Lexmark printer. Not everybody does. They're a, mm -hmm. a printer, toner, document management company that was spun out of uh, IBM in 1991 when uh, IBM divested a lot of its hardware manufacturing operations. They're based here in Lexington. I'm not sure if the name Lexmark has anything to do with Lexington, but... Um, I'll I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, you better you better find that one out. Then. Yeah, so it's cool. It's it's a uh, it's beautiful, warm uh, end of summer here. Um, as usual, we always do some great local things. So um, in addition to spending some time at Lexmark and touring there, we had dinner at the Kentucky Castle. Yes, Heather, there's a castle mm -hmm. in Kentucky that dates all <laughs> the way back to 1969. Okay. <laughs> and um, is there bourbon in the castle? <laughs> oh, there's bourbon everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, the castle is uh, it, it was created by its original owners. It changed hands. It's it's went doing a major renovation about uh, 15 years ago, and now it's a B and B, then special functions facility. That's where we had dinner, and then uh, toured um, since we're here and we kind of have to uh, Woodford Reserve. That's one of the uh, premium small batch. Kentucky bourbons, whiskeys produced in Woodford County, not too far from here, about 30 minutes uh, west of Lexington. And it's owned by the Brown Foreman Corporation, which has been, uh, we have some good friends there in the sustainability side. Um, so, you know, go through a distillery, um, have a little taste, not the worst thing at the end of a work day for anybody, anywhere. <laughs> I, highly, I highly recommend it. You should go make sure you see some horses running, too, at some point. <laughs> oh, actually, um, that's actually part of it, too. We're visiting um, mm. one of the uh, the stables uh, that um, sort of one of these optional tours, the Windstar Farm, which is the home of the Triple Crown winner, Justify. I understand Justify has uh, uh, recently been acquired and will not be there. So, uh, But we managed to justify the visit anyway. I'm I'm jealous on that count. So. Yeah. Well, you uh, yeah you've been holding down the fort there in New Jersey even during last week's raucous uh, global climate action summit. Um, yes. What does it feel like yes, yes, yes. from from afar? Um, I'm actually I'm prepping. Well, yeah, you know we'll talk a little bit more about perceptions from afar in a moment um, in the week in review, but just um, getting my my head together for the climate week here in New York next week. Um, that's the 
the big event that we've been, that I actually unfortunately had to miss the last few years because it's been a conflict with Verge, but excited to be heading into New York City for some, some great meetings and um, to hear more about um, concrete commitments. And I, I know I'll get to see you too, so. Yeah, that's uh, on my uh, my next stop after Kentucky. Well, it's actually going to D.C. for the weekend. Um, what what are you going to be doing at Climate Week? So mainly hitting the opening ceremony, but then I'm going to catch up with a couple of um, companies. I will be speaking with Enel, um, which I, uh, as I cover energy, just needing to get better acquainted with their strategy to work with um, big companies on green power acquisitions. I'm also going to be talking to um, Rico, which um, another big uh, consumer gadgets, if you will, um, printing and, and products company, and they've uh, they're visiting and have made some um, new commitments to renewables, 100%. Um, so we'll be catching up with them and some other companies, and I'm also going to be heading over to some um, ubiquitous, I guess, if you want it, want to consider it, but Bloomberg events um, on just more um, disclosure uh, strategies and so forth. And so just a busy week full of um, um, immersing myself in what's next for the the community. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to be facilitating uh, some sessions, a couple of sessions um, at an event uh, called the Sustainable Development Impact Summit put on by the World Economic Forum, uh, the uh, Fourth Industrial Revolution um, organization within uh, the uh, forum. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution for the Earth Initiative. And uh, one of those sessions is uh, I'm going to be facilitating has to do with a group uh, that's been working together. I'll talk more about this um, afterwards, but I, I just find it really interesting. I'm excited to be going there um, where they uh, companies have been coming together and along with a number of organizations to look at how do you uh, apply science-based targets to things beyond climate? And so there's a group that's emerging that comes out of the w World Economic Forum and IUCN and uh, WRI and the Stockholm Resilience Center and some others looking at, um, at how do you apply this to water and land and, and uh, some other things. So I think that, that that's going to be interesting, and it, it seems to be uh, the next one of the next places that the sustainability community goes, and this will definitely impact companies just as uh, science-based climate targets has. So that's going to be one of my activities there. But before we go forward, let's go back to the Week in Review. So the Global Climate Action Summit took place last week in San Francisco, and um you know, it was this big, crazy, many, many events, hundreds of events uh, along with the, the main summit. Um, somebody asked me how it was, and I, I said, you know the parable of the blind man and the elephant? Right, you know that, where three blind men approach an elephant, and each one feels a different part, mm-hmm. a, a tusk, a, a trunk, a leg, a tail or something, and, and come away thinking that the elephant is different than the other two. This was like a herd of elephants. <laughs> It was like it was like you know. So all you could do is maybe you know see one part of one uh, one of the many many elephants. I led three of the side events: uh, one on a carbon removal, one on building efficiency, and one on the role of aviation um, in climate change. And 
I went to two or three others and I feel like I didn't experience anything because there was so much going on. I did on Friday, the very last day during the last few hours, I did make it over finally to the summit uh, in Moscone Center at the big conference center. It was impressive. I just wanted to sort of get the ambiance and see what all the fuss was about. And, you know, I saw Gore speak, but I had already seen him speak earlier that week. So it wasn't, you know, but in a few other interesting sessions, um, Jane Goodall and Dave Matthews together at last on stage. But it was really hanging out in the lobby of the Moscone Center and, you know, sort of being the whale that filters the krill as people kept running through there, you know, just seeing all kinds of people I hadn't seen in a while. That I felt like I got a taste, but only a taste. But I asked you earlier, what was it like for you to watch this from afar via the live stream? Well, so I actually felt um, lucky to be away from it, <laughs> I must admit, because I, I spent two chunks of time spending uh, on two live streams. One was the super pollutant event that I wrote about. And I, I love, I just, I don't love the topic, but I love the, the way they, they're putting this. Um, but we're, we're talking about the methane and carbon, the black carbon and the other sort of substances, the other greenhouse gases that don't get talked about as much as, as carbon dioxide. So that was for me a nice uh, immersion in that topic and something that helps ground future coverage. I also was able to be thoughtful about an event. It was another affiliate event that was on carbon pricing and carbon taxes. And again, and that's actually something I'm planning to write about a little bit more. I think it's a topic that probably deserves more attention, especially since there are more pricing and trading schemes coming into play around the world. And it's something that uh, companies increasingly need to sort through as far as their future strategy, because they might have to account for a price in, on carbon, um, even if they don't want to. <laughs> so, um, but in all seriousness, the live streams are great. I found a little confusing trying to get, actually get to the, the live streams of the event itself. And, and it seemed like, I, I don't know, I, 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 being from, from the technology industry, I used to try to cover things like the consumer electronics show and the big, huge computer dealer exposition a long time ago, Comdex. Um, and the only way to get through something like that is to actually go in ahead of time knowing what you want to focus on and because uh, there's just no way. And I, I respected all of the announcements and commitments that came out last week, but I almost feel like um, it, it was too much. Like you're, you're, to go back to your elephant thing, I mean, it's just it was too much for for people to process, and that may be one of the reasons why, um, as you note in one of your stories uh, in, in this week, um, an essay really the mainstream media didn't really cover it all that much. They were focused on things like the protests and you know, ooh, Jerry Brown. And, you know, so they kind of focused on the, the drama of it and not necessarily the substance, which was a shame because there was a lot of substance, but unfortunately so much substance that maybe it got a little bit buried. Um, the mainstream um, media is good at, you know, pulling together a lot of information. And and even if they didn't have to cover it all, because it, like you said, it's hard to do, even giving more of a flavor or talking about the fact that, that something – really interesting is and, and different is going on here because you you know you think about the fact that there were 4000 people mayors governors investors entrepreneurs ngo and civil society organization leaders and 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 dozens of of ceos from some big 
of the world's biggest companies. And they all came together to double down, basically, and, and enthusiastically on their commitments to fixing the climate crisis. And by the way, you know, also lambast America's president for dereliction of duty on this topic. And so is that newsworthy? I mean, relative to everything else that's going on, I mean, it's. I think it's pretty interesting. And I did a little uh, content analysis on on the the Google uh, where I you know looked Sunday night just before I wrote this piece um, about how many Google news hits there were for the Global Climate Action Summit, just under a hundred thousand, and how many there were for the iPhone XS, which had been in the middle of the summit on Wednesday, had been introduced, even though it wasn't won't be available till right around now. Um, it got uh, you know three hundred times more, thirty five million as opposed to a hundred thousand, and so uh, you know that's just one little metric, and you know one is a very aspirational you know thing that we get to own. The other is oh, it's just the world we live in. But um, I, I just uh, this has been part of a phenomenon I've been watching for a long long time where the mainstream media doesn't know what to do with positive sustainability, corporate sustainability news. It knows how to talk about polluters. It knows how to look at wind markets and some of the pieces and also to, you know, both when they're doing well and not doing well. But to step back and, you know, in the, you know, we we, we study journalism and you learn the difference between the dog bites man story, which is happens every day, and the man bites dog story, which is doesn't, which is the more the definition of news, things that aren't the same old thing that happen every day. This is not something that happens every day when when people, companies and, and political leaders and movie stars and, and NGOs that normally don't work together <laughs> come together and and say we are still in we are active we are upping our commitments we are, are aiming even higher for our targets and then over the next 5 10 20 years and i think it should have been news um why it's not is a conversation for another day i you know i'm just going to one have one more thought on that and i don't disagree with you at all i think um the, the mainstream media does not know how to cover this issue. And this, that really came through with the, the last election, where if it had been covered differently, you might have some different things going on in this country right now. But I will say that um, part of it might have been the location. A lot of the financial and business media is out of New York and in different places, not San Francisco. And it might have been just, hey, who's there? So I don't know. Um, it is too bad. I totally agree with you on that. Um, but I don't know I think there were a lot of factors in, in the sort of the mismatch, if you will, and, and the paucity of coverage of yeah. the event. So I mean, that's every, probably enough to everybody, say that, right? everybody, everybody's got a uh, Silicon Valley bureau these days, so I'm not sure I buy into that, you know, other side of the country thing. But it is a, it was such a big and broad topic, it was hard to cover. But some of the smaller things, uh, more focused, specific things, are easier to cover, and you covered one of those this week, a bio-based material that's stronger than spider silk. I think you have to, you got to explain that, Heather. So uh, I know, and it, and I had to be specific about a bio-based material because the strongest material, I believe, is graphene or derivatives thereof. And you know a whole lot more about that than I do. However, um, this is a piece. It's my latest breakthroughs column. This column has been on a little bit of a hiatus, um, not intentionally, just just has been. But getting back into it, there are some researchers out of um, Sweden, uh, the KTH Royal Institute of Technology, 
who basically looked at nature, right? So it's a, got a little bit of a biomimicry uh, theme here. And they looked at what the, the cellulose nanofibers, the, basically the building blocks of trees and plants, and sort of asked themselves, like, what, how can that, you know, 100 feet tall pine tree, st- what, what enables it to stay so straight? What enables it to be as strong as it is and, and, and be able to lift that tree up into the heavens? So they started looking at ways of re-engineering, if you will, those nanofibers. And what they came down on was they used um, basically a, a process where they sort of mash these things through uh, using water. It's called hydrodynamic focusing. Uh, and they take the nanofibers and push them through a steel channel using water. And lo and behold, they basically have mashed them together into a substance that is stronger than spider silk. So spider silk is apparently, and I didn't know this, the strongest um, material in nature. And I won't get all too technical, but specifically it's 20% stronger than spider silk. And they're looking at ways of combining it with other materials to um, use in different components. So for example, it might be used in an automotive part to make it lighter and therefore more aerodynamic and therefore maybe more um, energy efficient. Medical devices, this could have a lot of applications there, especially artificial joints. Um, they're saying that could be like five years for, for real applications to emerge there. But the, the reason that's interesting is because it's got stretchy qualities, right? It can, can, can flex and bend and so forth in different ways than maybe other materials can. can. So from a design perspective, there are all sorts of advantages. And then from a um, you know, sustainability perspective, the, the, the implication is that you could reduce the carbon emissions that are typically associated with producing the other materials that these are replacing, so the fossil fuels-based um, components and materials. So just kind of a cool, um, and thank you for the hat tip on this one. I think you saw this, this one first. <laughs> you and I are always looking for uh, crazy, uh, fun, um, creative new developments, and this is just a, a really interesting development out of Sweden, again, that um, should be patented by next month. and. The scientists are looking of ways to combine this with other materials for, for practical applications. Well, one of the ways these materials may eventually be deployed um, it could be uh, in 3D printing, also known as additive manufacturing. And we had a piece this week uh, out of uh, Yale School of Forestry and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, just a couple of you know safety schools over there, up, up there in in the Northeast, um, called It's Too Soon to Call 3D Printing a Green Technology. And um, this has been a, uh, something I've been interested in for a long time, that the idea of, of uh, that you can print something on site using additive, where you're basically building something up, as opposed to subtractive manufacturing, where you're cutting it out of out of a bigger piece of metal or, or some, th- some other way. But um, additive manufacturing has little or no waste uh, and uh, and can be done uh, on the on site so it's a shipping cost there's a lot of environmental potential benefits to that but the authors here um, Reed Lifsett, uh, Tim Gutowski and Martin Baumers uh, say maybe not so much at least not yet and so they uh, this comes out of a special issue of Yale University's Journal of Industrial Ecology um, and you know they they look at at two things. I think one is the fact that you can um, print things easily. That's good news and not so good news. 
if you think about when uh, the advent, we're old enough, uh, Heather, to the advent of printers uh, to attach to computers, uh, being able to take word processing or, or spreadsheets, you know, that you could write, print, re review, print again, review, edit, change, rearrange, print again, you know, and it didn't, it didn't stop us from printing, even though the idea of this uh, was potentially a paper-saving device. And so the other question is, what do you do? You, you can print materials, you can print prototypes and prototype it again and again and again and again. That's, you know, what happens to these materials? What are these materials even made of? Uh, what happens to them? Are you just creating, um, as they call it uh, in this article, junk on demand, where you have more and more waste than you'd ever... Yeah, <laughs> crap jacks. Exactly. I love that. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then there's also just the... Uh, these things require a lot of heat so far. Um, and, and again, the, the, the materials themselves, what are they made of and what are, where, do, where do they go? Are they infinitely uh, depolymerizable where you can break them back down to their polymers or monomers and then put them back into the front end of this device? Or does this become non-recyclable waste? So a lot of questions about additive manufacturing. On the other side, and I, I, I love this because it really does thoroughly talk about both sides, but... Um, the idea that you could print a part um, and not have to have all sorts of inventory sitting unused and created um, just for the, the possibility that something might break down, that is a real benefit, I think. Um, it could help keep equipment longer, prolong the lifespan if you're able to fix it more quickly. Um, and so that that's sort of the upside, if you will, but absolutely a, a really nice look at both sides of the equation. So one of the things we did this week is we kind of excited about is the editorial team uh, released the first, uh, the only so far, 2018 edition of the Verge Vanguard Awards. Um, Heather, you want to talk about what the awards are intended to do? So we looked at um, the people that are on the bleeding edge, the leading edge, if you will, um, of different trends in energy transport and the circular economy. So we pegged this to our Verge themes, our, our primary themes of that event. And we wanted to look at the people and organizations who kind of st were sticking their necks out in some way. Um, it could be through a policy. It could be by trying a new technology. It could be by putting money out there for uh, a new idea or a new technology. And it was just really the idea came came down to the fact that it, it's people that help really make things happen and groups of people. So in, in the respect of a team or a company or something like that. So what we did was um, we took nominations, as, as many of you out there know, from the community, uh, from the Green Biz community. And then we were, I will admit, we were highly subjective. We, we wanted to make sure that we represented our areas of coverage equally. So you, we could have had 20 people in energy, we could have had 20 people in transport and, and circular economy, but we really were vicious about deciding who should be on and off. And, and lo and behold, we have our wonderful list. Um, and we both, we all actually did a lot of writing on this. And what we're going to do now is have interview highlights from some of the people that we um, included on the list this year. And first up is one of my subjects, Bill Weil, the former sustainability and energy czar for Facebook and Google. And um, Bill has 
done so much um, in terms of his own companies. Like, so he was, he was instrumental in getting both of those companies to start buying clean power. However, even more so, um, it was his action to really go out into the community and say, hey, guys, you know, hi, people at Microsoft, hi, people um, at other companies. We need to talk about this collectively. We need to have our voice represented all together and to be able to talk about why this is important to us. And so he was instrumental in, in frankly, in the development of the REBA Alliance, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, as well as the RE100 campaign that the climate group champions. So behind the scenes, certainly. And I asked Bill, uh, how did he think the transition was going? And here's what he has to say. So if we set climate change aside, I would say it's going great. I mean, the, the, the trends at this point are very clear and pretty much unstoppable in the electricity sector um, and actually moving pretty fast. Um, in other sectors like transportation, I think the trend is clear, but, but still pretty slow. But if you look out 10 or certainly 20 years, I think in the 20 year time frame, we will see a massive shift in transportation, widespread uh, electrification of many forms of transportation. Um, and so I think that, that if we ignore the climate issue, I think actually things are going great. We are winning on so many fronts and there's so much good stuff happening and there's innovation uh, in, in many areas. Um, that's, that, that's a reason to be very hopeful and even optimistic. But if you look at the climate issue, the, the problem is that, that climate change and the physics of the climate essentially impose deadlines um, where if we don't move fast enough, we will cross tipping points that, that may, in, in part, that may set off positive feedback effects that, that put us into a, uh, you know, a, a pretty bad and long-term stable situation where it takes hundreds or thousands of years for the climate to come back to something that, is, that we would recognize today or where things like agriculture and our food systems adapt to the new climate. And, and that's scary. I think that's a reason to be, um, well, you know, depending on, on your personality, it's certainly a reason to be scared and, and maybe pessimistic, and it might make you kind of depressed. So I think that, that, that you know, I, I've heard a couple of people say, we're winning, we just need to win faster. And I think that's a fair statement. One of the people I talked with, Heather, is uh, Noah Deich, who is the executive director of an organization called Carbon 180. Until last week, it was known as the Center for Carbon Removal. Spun out of a, a Berkeley uh, MBA project, basically, and it's now an organization with a small team uh, here in Oakland, California, that's um, looking at carbon removal. How do you not just emit less through efficiency or renewables, but actually take carbon out of the sky, out of the atmosphere that's already there. Um, and this is a whole range of things around um, that from simple kinds of things, trees, to uh, geoengineering, where you're going up and spraying things or sucking things out of the sky, whatever it is. There's lots, a whole bunch of those are kind of controversial. 
but really looking at how those come together and pushing them forward on the policy front, pushing them forward on the market development and technology development side has, I think, really filled a gap and helped people to realize some of the things that, for example, Paul Hawken talked about in his book, Drawdown, around how do you actually draw down and, and reverse climate change, not just stop doing that. So I had a chance to talk to Noah in the course of writing this little piece and um, I asked him sort of to talk about how this all got going. I guess I didn't realize it was a naive question at the time. I think as I got into it, people would say, well, once carbon is up in the atmosphere, it's so diffuse. How are you ever going to get it back out? It just sounded like such a challenging problem that all of the experts that have thought about climate change have said, let's not even try and focus on that. Let's try and focus on stopping emissions because that's what we know how to do right now. Seems like the, the easier strategy. And in the 80s, that would have been sufficient if we had started stopping emissions. But because it took us so long to see the impressive trajectory in clean energy that we see today, all of a sudden, the question doesn't become, can we do one or the other? But it's how do we do both? And how do we do both at scale? Basically, if I had come at this from a academic perspective on climate mitigation, I think the conventional wisdom at the time was don't bother with capturing carbon that's already in the air. It's way too hard. I, I think the interesting thing for me was that I had intended to do some sort of for-profit startup. And I worked for a venture capital firm in business school for a semester as an intern pitched them this idea and everyone that I talked to about it was like, this sounds incredibly important to do, but it's not a business right now. Go figure out how to create the ecosystem of markets, technologies, and policies that we have today for clean energy and then come back and you'll have viable businesses that we can invest in and you'll have that startup that you want. And so it was from that that I essentially treated the birth of the Center for Carbon Removal in a very entrepreneurial way about going to talk to all of the investors and, and companies, talking to the NGOs, asking them, hey, is this important? Yes. Why aren't you doing it? It's just we don't have enough resources, not the top of our priority list. But the more that I talked to folks, the more confirmation that I had that it was an important issue to work on, but the more divergence I had of opinions on how to work on it, which was the exciting thing. And ultimately, some amalgamation of that led to the center. One of the other subjects that I had the good fortune to write about um, is, is a woman named Nancy Fund. And I hope many of you know her. She is a very influential venture capitalist, founder and managing director of DBL Partners in San Francisco. But also, I like to think of her as the godmother of impact investing. What Nancy has done is get much of the, the investment world, or at least a growing um, number of the people out there with money, to think about not just the financial impact of an idea, but also the potential uh, social impacts that, that it could have. And um, I was very actually surprised to hear that her first job was with the Sierra Club. <laughs> um, I don't know if you knew that, Joel, you probably did, but um, I, uh, she started out in, in uh, that world because she wanted to have an impact on environmental um, policies and, and social change. And she figured at the time that she couldn't do that in the, in the, in the private sector it, with a company. Um, she actually reconsidered that worldview a little bit later, um, working alongside the Intel co-founder, Robert Noyce. And so she learned from him why it was so important for um, there to be public-private collaboration and for sort of industry to work together with um, the environmental world and in, in, in shaping uh, good, 
good decisions and, and good investments. So uh, it was a fascinating conversation. And one of the things that I would like to share for the podcast is her advice for young entrepreneurs. And here's what Nancy had to say on that. Well, this is going to come as no surprise. <laughs> My recommendation to the next generation of entrepreneurs is to embrace impact and to build the badass companies that, that turn the world upside down and hire a lot of people and create wealth across many different populations, but also do more than that and that change the world for the better, uh, be that through sustainability improvement, through workforce innovation, through in improving gender and racial uh, ratios in, in the workplace and in leadership, uh, through economic development, transforming communities by the companies that you create within them. Uh, there, it just goes on and on. There are so many ways for the next generation to not waste time like some of us did in our early years, separating the world into these artificial silos where you spend many hours making money at your company, and then you spend a few hours volunteering somewhere. Uh, we can do better than that, and the next generation is, is wired for excelling at that. And so I just urge them to do it as early and often as possible. Great. I love these. Let's do two more. I'll do one. You do one. So my is uh, Tom Zaki, who's the CEO of TerraCycle, a really interesting company. And a, he's a really interesting guy. Tom's uh, story is kind of legend when he was in college. Uh, he started a business run out of his dorm room, creating worm poop fertilizer that was sold in recycled plastic bottles. Uh, it was used to fertilize all kinds of things, some legal and some not so much legal to grow. But um you know, it was a very quirky kind of beginning, and he turned that quirkiness into an art form around recycling. And he now had this 250-person company called TerraCycle, uh, which has worked with a bunch of big brands, Colgate, Frito-Lay, Hasbro, Nabisco, Procter & Gamble, and to, to turn used packaging into uh, things, uh, thing, upcycling, basically. And, it's you know, it's gone really well, and there's you know, 250 people, and I think he said thirty million or so in in revenue, um, and and that's uh, that's pretty cool. But it's just it's not true circular economy, and so that's sort of where things are going next. And uh, it's going to be a big launch of a new initiative that uh, we'll talk more about um, uh, in probably in January. That's um, going to be done at Davos with a bunch of uh, big big brands and 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 TerraCycle. That could revolutionize, at least for some products, it's certainly disruptive uh, in terms of how things are packaged and sold. Uh, but I think Tom has really been at the forefront of of so much of of this thinking about and rethinking and thinking differently about waste and packaging and recycling and turning old things into new things, things that we now are much more commonplace as we ponder the potential of a circular economy. So I asked him to take a look at, you know, how this has changed recently and what's been happening. And um, he had some interesting things to say. I feel that it's been a uphill battle for the past you know, 15 years of building TerraCycle. And in that process, we built a business that has only grown. And we're now like, you know, 250 team members with 32 million, you know, small, solid, small business. Uh, you know, but it's been for the amount of effort creativity, all those positives, I feel like, you know, wow, we only, you know, this is where we are, right? Like, I feel like we should be much further ahead based on that huge amount of energy that's gone into it. 
And the timing, what, what gives me just so much hope and like, you know, to feel like it's paying off. Since the past nine months, the overall uh, growth and, you know, people calling us, you know, uh, uh, the overall velocity on business, people taking it seriously versus just sort of as a sideshow has really increased in a big way. It's sort of like, you know what, you know, we've been here, we've been slogging it out. And uh, now it's our time. Like the spotlight, you know, is, 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 is shifting and shining on this part of the, of the movement. The, the challenge is there's not so many players out there, right? It's for how big the spotlight is coming, there's not a big ecosystem. And now that has to really, uh, you know, the pressure's on to now, you know, do everything we've talked about in a big way and didn't have the opportunity for it before. Now the opportunity is there. And the final individual we'll feature is Seth Baruch, and he's the National Director for Energy and Utilities with Kaiser Permanente, the big uh, California healthcare organization. I don't have the opportunity to use them because I'm in New Jersey, but um, they're notable for being one of the few, um, the first, well, they're notable for being the first and still only healthcare facility in California to be using a microgrid powered by renewable energy. So that's the backup option in, in Richmond, California, if um, the power goes out. And so Seth has been really championing um, the adoption of solar plus energy storage across the entire company. His background has been really, his career has been really dedicated to energy efficiency and clean power advocacy. He's been involved with um, development of community choice aggregation programs and, um, you know, lots of different um, efforts along, along his career. And I have two, actually, thoughts from him. The first of the, of the two clips you're going to hear is focused on how he's learned to build consensus um, within an organization and externally. So how you go about doing that to, to, to get the buy-off for projects like this. I mean, this is a pretty, um, pretty daring project for this, this organization to take on. And then the second thing he um, addresses is why... Why, yes, it's important to think big, but why doing things locally can sometimes get you more bang for the buck. So here's Seth. A lot of the work I did uh, before coming to Kaiser with community choice aggregation programs, which are, you're familiar with CCAs, I was doing um, uh, consulting uh, as part of my own company uh, for you know, until I came to Kaiser, working with different stakeholders around trying to set up these programs. So you had the labor community, you had the environmental community, you had the business community. Of course, you had local government folks who were um, all interested in doing what was best for the environment, particularly in the Bay Area, and, uh, and, and trying to set up these programs and what they would look like uh, was uh, an incredible um, <laughs> uh, effort in terms of bringing together people with different backgrounds and, and agendas and, and interests uh, into forming these uh, programs whereby local governments would essentially provide um, electricity service, which was a totally new model uh, pretty much anywhere, but especially in California. And I, and I really do think that was probably what helped me get my um, job at Kaiser, because one of the questions I was asked when I was being interviewed is, you know, how do you work with stakeholders? Or what would you, what's your approach to working with stakeholders? And I described kind of how I did it with, um, with these CCA programs. And Kaiser is, is, I mean, the, the, the number of um, both internal and external stakeholders around which you, uh, it is best to build consensus to do interesting and exciting projects uh, is, is so important. So, I mean, it's really a matter of, um, of knowing who the stakeholders are 
which at a place like Kaiser, you know, takes a while because it's, it's a large organization, um, and then uh, proactively engaging them uh, and understanding kind of what their drivers and constraints and issues and concerns are. Uh, and I think really being able to understand that and, and um, sort of map it out, try to map it out intelligently before you get into the whole uh, process, whether it's building a microgrid somewhere or, or um, fuel cells or whatever, uh, to, um, to really work closely and, and uh, engage the stakeholders early and often. Uh, that was true with the CCA's work. Uh, it was, it's also true with, um, with all of the work I do at Kaiser, and that you know, obviously – um, makes the uh, the end results uh, easier to attain, and ultimately more rewarding when you when you bring um, you know our you know, the site people, the doctors, the the, the members, uh, facility managers, regional stakeholders, um, and then even at the uh, at the national corporate level in Kaiser. So, yeah, it, that that was um, a lesson I learned pretty early, and it actually went back to my old days at the Alliance to Save Energy, which was in itself a coalition of government. Uh, business, uh, social community groups, that kind of thing. So yeah, it was it was a lesson I learned pretty early in my career. I, I would say um, be local. Um, I moved to DC after college, thinking, and since you know my age, I can tell you it was it was when Bill Clinton got uh, elected, and everyone was talking about changing the world and 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 doing huge big things. And I, I do feel that throughout my career, what what I've been able to, where I've been able to make the biggest impact, have been in very sort of discrete sort of local projects. Um, the, the microgrid is is one example. Uh, you know, in my work at the um, at the Alliance to Save Energy, I uh, I was working on these programs, but then it soon became quickly uh, clear to me that where we can make the biggest impact would be on doing local projects that would be repl rep replicable. Um, so you know, don't necessarily, I say to my younger self, don't. Uh, don't think um, you you need to change the world by thinking big. You can change the world by thinking small and making discrete impacts that you know can influence others. One of the sessions I had the pleasure of participating in last week at the Global Climate Action Summit was the Aviation Climate Action Accelerator uh, produced by uh, SFO, San Francisco International Airport, and sponsored along with uh, by Alaska Air and United Airlines and ClimateWorks. Um, and a uh, really interesting conversation, a bunch of uh, air industry uh, professionals talking about the future of aviation through the lens of climate change. And here to talk about that is the Director of Sustainability for San Francisco International and the woman who put this all together, Erin Cook. Hey, Erin. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Oh, so so in, what an interesting uh, day we've had so far. Um, why did you see a need, first of all, to have an aviation summit at the Climate Action Summit? Well, with aviation representing 2 to 3% of global emissions, we wanted to make sure we were part of certainly acknowledging the challenge that aviation faces in decarbonizing, the impact it has on the environment, but also the solution set that we can really drive by working across a variety of different players in our sector. We think it's really important for us to be part of the dialogue. There were a few instances of aviation being on the main stage at GCAS, but we felt like having a separate event to really do more of a deep dive would be a, a good call to action for our, our industry. Uh, why is SFO taking the lead? I mean, obviously, you're the home airport for this event, but there's lots of airports in the Bay Area and lots of other airports, obviously, around the world that are looking at and thinking about this. What, what's your interest here? 
Um, well, we certainly are we're the home and the, the gateway, really, to aviation. We think that um, there's a lot that we can do to drive the key players that are landing and taking off from our airport. The majority of our missions, when we look at Scope 3, come from the um, landing and takeoff of aircraft. Um, and we, as a, a city and county partner and department, um, recognize that bold initiatives are really um, important and critical um, given the, the devastating impact impacts of climate change and that we really have a great opportunity to convene and partner with um, aviation partners um, to figure out, you know, what can we do and what is it really an airport's role in decarbonizing aviation? Well, that was sort of my question because obviously we can see for an airline fuels is a big part of that and, and routes and how they uh, take off and descend. Uh, all of those things affect the fuel fuel efficiency and therefore the, the carbon impact. Then there's even some non-carbon impacts uh, when they're up in the sky, some uh, other kinds of emissions. Uh, why does that matter to an airport? Because an airport uh, is going to you know have takeoffs and landings and, and passengers and restaurants anyway. Why is that your concern? Well, I think first it just comes down to health um, and equity. We want to make sure that we're creating a healthy environment for our workforce. We employ 44,000 people, and we are, as I mentioned earlier, the gateway to a you know better quality of life for those people, but also to a once-in-a-lifetime destination for others. And so we think it's our important, it's important, and also our imperative to safeguard the environment for the also 57 million passengers that are traveling through our airport. So what are you hoping will happen as a result of this uh, summit? I, I take it there hasn't been a summit of this type in the past. What, what, what's your, your hope here? There are a lot of really great actors that are working at an international level. We've heard a lot today about um, the International Civil Aviation Organization and ATAG and IATA and lots of other um, great organizations that are already at, in this space. We think that there really can be a, a strong driver and consensus that can happen at more of a local level, which is what GCAS is all about. It's about subnationals, it's about non-state actors, and what role they can play in driving forward a bold climate agenda. And we think that today is an opportunity to have that conversation that's aviation focused and figuring out really what the nexus is for us all to partner, um, to, co you know, cooperate um, and figure out also how we really drive consumer behavior this direction and recognizing there is a price of carbon um, and that we all really um, can be part of figuring out what the next step is um, to drive down that impact. Do you see that role for an airport like SFO to actually compel airlines and the air, air aviation industry to do things uh, to to whether it's inducements or pressures or other things is, is there an actual role that airports can can uh, accelerate change um, we're seeing a lot of interest in airports and getting in this space because they know that there's a lot of leadership that's happening amongst our airlines already to explore this but we are, though we don't purchase fuel, um, we have the ability to influence infrastructure and the transportation networks that can ultimately serve those airlines by providing them fuel. And so we think there really absolutely is a role for airports. Um, we know there's been great leadership at Seattle Tacoma. SFO has convened a sustainable aviation fuel stakeholder working group and is initiating a feasibility study to explore how we work across the supply chain to accelerate and deploy sustainable aviation fuel at our airport, particularly given California's leadership with the um, opt-in inclusion of sustainable aviation fuel in our low-carbon fuel standards coming online, we hope, um, January 1st, 2019. So what do you say to people who just say, come on, aviation could never be sustainable. You're flying people, you're, you're these big metal tubes. 
and uh, burning lots and lots and lots of fuel. Um, aren't you just tinkering at the margins? Do you think aviation can truly be sustainable? I do, and I think we have a lot of great airlines that believe that as well and are working that direction. So we're seeing GCAS being this incredible opportunity for people to come together and make bold commitments. We've seen announcements out of United Airlines, out of Alaska Airlines, and then airports also saying, hashtag, you know, we're still in. We want to work on zero net energy, carbon neutrality, decarbonization in our infrastructure. Um, and we think that there's consumer awareness that's building certainly outside of the Bay Area and wanting to make decisions that don't affect the environment and make investments that also have a beneficial outcome. Well, a lot of new action getting ready for takeoff. So thank you so much for putting this together, bringing the, in the industry together to have this really important conversation. Aaron Cook, Director of Sustainability at San Francisco International Airport. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much. As I said earlier in the program, I'm in Lexington and we're uh, at the headquarters of Lexmark Corporation, uh, which is hosting the uh, meeting of our Green Biz Executive Network. And I'm here with John Gagel, who is Global Senior Manager of Corporate Sustainability here. He's been at uh, Lexmark for 19 years um, and been working in, in not just in sustainability, but uh, Lexmark has a, a fairly long history with what we now call a circular economy uh, and uh, going back quite a way. So talk a little bit about how that that came about, John. Sure, Joel, and thanks. Thanks for giving us the chance to talk about it. So, it actually came about um, about 25 years ago when we started working on uh, our supply side of the business, working with plastics that were coming back to us. We were collecting cartridges uh, back from our customers, and what we were trying to do is figure out how we could reuse those cartridges in a way that made really business sense first. What, what was the best business way to approach those cartridges coming back to us and, and how could we reuse them? So as a result of that, when we started getting the cartridges back, we said, okay, some of these cartridges we can remanufacture. They're, they're good enough, maybe replace just a few parts, but some not so much. You know, they maybe they had a little bit of a rougher life and so as a whole, we couldn't reuse them. So to take those cartridges and then demanufacture them. Now we had really what became a, um, a raw material supply. We had plastics, metals, different things, component parts that came out of those out of those cartridges. So what were we going to do with it? So that's what we sat down and figure out. How are we going to handle this? How can we use this to maximize our business opportunity, but also to maximize our environmental opportunity? What started this? I mean, how did you get into this? This was pretty early on in this conversation. I think a lot of it came from our heritage, you know, to go back quite a bit in time. We we spun off from IBM years ago and, and created Lexmark. And we, we grew up with that that environmental um, backgrounds, part of our culture. So I think there were a lot of individual people within the business at the time that had a passion for those things. And so when the opportunity presented itself for a cool project to get involved on uh, or in, we we got involved. And so we started working on it. So yeah, you started off with cartridges. Now Lexmark makes a whole range of, of printing uh, devices from from small to very large. Uh, where has that taken you, and where are you now? Well, we we've gone a long way, obviously, with the cartridges. You know, we started with individual parts um, and our percent content of recyclate resin that we were able to put in it back in the the early days is a lot less than we do now. Um, we have some parts that are a hundred percent. Uh, PCR resin in our in our products. PCR is post-consumer recycled. 
Yes, that's correct. And and it's our own. So it's closed loop and that that's on the supply side. So that that's a real true circular economy story, right? A, a, go ahead, Joel. So so you're taking just to be clear printers back your own printers back for whatever refur- refurbishing or they've just uh, been used in the market long enough and taking that plastic turning it back into plastic for new printers that you also were making. Yeah, so the, so to be clear it's the the cartridges were were bringing back, right? So the cartridges is our own PCR resin that we're putting back in and, and closing loop. Now the the hardware the printers themselves what's happening they do come back to us now. But we don't have it currently enough volume to do exactly what we've done on the on the cartridge side, getting our own plastics back. So what we're doing now on the on the hardware side, the printer, the actual device, is we're purchasing post-consumer recycled content resin and plastic resin off the open market. And then we're mixing that with virgin resin to put back into our into our hardware. But we'd love to get to the point where we can do on the hardware side what we're currently doing on the on the cartridge side, which is true closed loop in-house. So what's, why are you doing this? Is there a business here for you? Are you actually making money doing this? Yeah, there's, there's a real business advantage to us. And imagine um, we're, we're paying for the raw materials to make the product. And, it, and once you figure out a way to reuse those raw materials, you only have to buy it once and then you can use it multiple times. So there's a, a benefit there. Then in our market, there, there's a lot of really good companies um, in our space that do a lot of great things related to sustainability. So one of the things when you when you're in that environment, you could see um, customers come to you with the question, "Okay, Lexmark, whoever, show us what initiatives and projects you have related to circular economy, related to reusing your own materials or refurbishing your devices, because they're trying to move up the hierarchy and sustainability. So not only do we have our own business needs to do it, we also have customer pressure and market pressure to be to to take the next step forward. So what's the dream when you come to when it comes to circular economy? What's what's the story you like you want to be able to tell me in three or five years? That's a really good question, Joel. I think the dream is not only doing what we've discussed on the supply side and the hardware side, but as you and I have talked about briefly already today, is for materials that we can't reuse, finding another manufacturer that can use that material. So not just being circular economy with ourselves, but maybe another manufacturer that's not even in the electronic space, maybe in their automotive or, you know, agriculture space or another industry that can use a material that's coming back to us so everything stays in the reuse loop and we're not sending anything to landfill or incineration or waste. Sounds like a good dream. Uh, John Gagel, thanks for bringing us to uh, Lexington and seeing a part of your company and 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 little bourbon tasting along the way. Uh, John Gagel is Global Senior Manager, Corporate Sustainability here at Lexmark Corporation. Thanks, John. Thank you, Joel. So before we go, I want to give a shout out to a podcast we have coming up next week, Why Vehicle Fleets Are Electrifying, all about uh, the early adopter, how fleet managers and early adopters are transitioning their medium and and, uh, heavy duty fleets to electric. And you'll hear about the 
sectors where it's still difficult to justify EVs, but also where it is happening and how that's going, uh, headed by our senior writer and analyst in transportation, Katie Fehrenbacher, and you'll hear from Mike Roth, uh, the executive director of the North American Council for Freight Efficiency, and Scott Philippi, the senior director of maintenance and engineering at UPS, along with Nate Springer from uh, BSR. And that's coming up next Tuesday, September 25th at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Uh, in the Pacific zone of the United States. And the other thing I wanted to plug, we mentioned it last week, is a special 10% discount code uh, for listeners of this podcast for our Verge conference next month. Uh, this week, by the way, is uh, the on the Today, actually, on the 21st is when our early bird rate expires. So if you're listening to this, it's still Friday. Take advantage of that. Um, but you can actually get 10% beyond that by typing in the code V as in Verge, V18POD, as in podcast. So it's V18POD. Type that into the special uh, little box and you'll get 10% discount code for Verge18 coming up in Oakland on October 16th to 18th. And with that... That's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories, events that we mentioned in this episode. And while you're over there, check out the link for our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. We always like it when you hit us up by email. If the address is 350 at greenbiz.com. GreenBiz 350's director this week is Isaac Silk, filling in for Stephanie Joyce. And um, Heather and I will be back next week from New York City for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>